Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and we all live in a yellow submarine. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I hereby accuse Lawrence Wright of using the Time Stone improperly as the sorcerer's. <laughs> this is Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of international relations and Derridian deconstruction. We are about to decide our next project right here on the fly. Dan, what are we going to do next? We're doing The Matrix. Okay, we're doing The Matrix, because I hear there's a sequel-ish thing coming out. Yes, you know, because the original movie came out in 1999, and to my knowledge, no other movies came out after that, and now there's <laughs> going to be a sequel, apparently. To be fair, of course, like everyone, I watched the trailer, and it looks cool. It, like, it looks interesting. I'm, yeah. I, I'm definitely going to watch it. There's no but denying that. The problem that. with The Matrix movies is they always look cool. Yes, and that is true, by the way, of the sequels that shall not be named. They yeah. also look cool. In fact, one of my favorite visuals ever is from The Matrix Reloaded. So, yeah. yeah. So we're going to do, after that, some other stuff we still haven't quite decided on, including something from Battlestar Galactica Reboot. And also, we will be looking at Apple TV's Foundation series. We have a lot of other ideas, are always taking suggestions as well. You can reach out to us via Twitter. I am at Anna Marie Cox. Dan is at Dan Dresner. Mm-hmm. We also have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. Dan, what else can people do on our Patreon page besides make suggestions? Well, they could agree to be patrons, which means <gasps> giving us a small bit of money in return for getting oodles of stuff, including early access to the podcast, participating in our monthly AMAs. There is some free swag involved, I believe, at the upper levels of, of patronage. And also they get to join our Discord channel, which is a vibrant community that really kind of doesn't necessarily have that much to do with the two of us. But like clearly the people who like listening to this podcast also like talking to each other. and They seem like a really cool group of people. All right, Dan, we're doing the end of October today. Why are we doing the end of October? Why are we discussing this book? Well, you know, Anna, Lawrence Wright wrote this book of fiction. I'm putting fiction in quotes. Because <laughs> because anyone who writes the defining nonfiction book on 9-11, The Looming Tower, and then has a pandemic book come out the month after a pandemic goes global, might be worth reading. I mean, there's some prescience involved in this novel. There's no denying that. That is true. I want to say that I'm just a huge fan of his. He wrote a book in the 90s called Remembering Satan, which probably is one of the reasons I dropped out of grad school. Because... (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, you owe Lawrence Wright a great deal of gratitude. I do. I've told him this, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Yeah, uh, because he's like a big Austin guy. Like, if you go Mm -hmm. to any literary thing around here, you'll probably run into him. He's just Mm -hmm. a nice, nice guy. But Remembering Satan is about the only case prosecuted about satanic ritual abuse in America. The only case ever prosecuted. Oh, wait, this was from the big wave of hysteria in the late 80s. Big wave of hysteria. No one ever actually went to trial or anything for this Mm -hmm. or was ever, like, I guess, charged, officially charged. Mm -hmm. But in this small town in, I believe, Washington State, this former deputy confessed to being a part of it. And the book explores recovered memories Oh, people say are recovered memories. Right, which might not be, in fact, recovered memories. Right, and also interrogation. Yes. And how interrogation, you can make people confess things, not just through torture, but just through kind of influence. Like, Mm -hmm. some people are more psychologically inclined than others, although there's not a huge, most of us are psychologically inclined to please others. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's just a fascinating book. It sort of touches on, like I said, sort of touches on, you know, police, confessions, religion, psychology. And why it made me drop out of grad school is that I was like, a journalist did this. <laughs> <laughs> and you realized a journalist does not, in fact, need a graduate degree to be a journalist. And I could write about really cool, interesting stuff in creative ways and... It would be the same kinds of things I was interested in, you know, To st- I was interested in studying in grad school, and I would get to talk to more people, you know, so. I would add, by the way, that another great thing to watch in terms of interrogation is the Netflix short series, When They See Us, about the Central Park Five. Oh, yeah. And about how those interrogations, again, non-coercive in the sort of physical way, like really get these kids to just admit things that they clearly did not do. Yeah. He also wrote a book about Texas politics and Texas history that's very good. Hmm. Also, I want to say up front, I knew and you knew because you read it. This book is not really science fiction. 
The way I would put it is, do you remember the show Max Headroom, Anna? Yes, back I, in the do. 80s? I do. If you remember Max Headroom... What? 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 Yes, okay. exactly. That was, that was my brief Max, Max Headroom, Headroom impersonation. <laughs> the, the television show Max Headroom always opened with, I think, the beginning, like, five minutes into the future. Mm-hmm. And that is how I kind of felt about this book. You're right. It's not really science fiction. And yet... <laughs> There is science and it is fiction. So, like, as far as I'm concerned, it, it is within the larger family of, of things that we should be talking about. And I may be more interested than you are in this particular genre of what is often called speculative fiction, especially mm. military speculative fiction. <laughs> because I found out a while ago that at the Naval Academy, they use these books. Yeah. To, oh no, to, no. Max to, Max Brooks's World War Z. He's yeah. been asked to lecture at the Naval War College. Well, but not I, just his is actual yeah. science fiction. But people right. who people do these gaming out stuff books. Yes. And also there are classes in it. I believe at mm-hmm. the War College in writing things like this. I, I can actually personally attest to this. I was part of the U.S. Military Academy. They have a, I, and I'm going to forget the acronym, but their seniors every year run a conference in the fall devoted to some particular theme, and the theme in my case, was worst-case scenarios, and they invited me because I'd written about zombies. What are the things that we haven't thought of that are more grounded in, in the real world? So that was a lot of fun. I love that clash of, you know, science fiction in the real world mm-hmm. because, like, this book terrified me, Dan. I will say that. Yes. <laughs> um, when I read it, I first read this book literally when it came out, which was about a month into the pandemic, the sort of lockdown, the quarantine right. phase of the pandemic. And weirdly, I found it comforting because we were not in that scenario. It, <laughs> I, I know that sounds awful, but like, as we will talk about, the, the virus that is talked about in this book is far more lethal and is far more debilitating than what we have currently undergone with COVID. And so I actually found it, oh, not that bad. Okay. okay. Yeah, you said but, the same thing about the Wanderers. That yeah. Like, at least we're not there. <laughs> the Chuck went in. Oh, yes. Well, again, like that, you know, that book, much like this one, Literally, civilization breaks down, and that's yeah. not what happens. Although, that said, it was scarier this time reading it, and we'll talk about why, I think, uh, a little bit later. Yeah, I do want to talk about why it's scarier, but I will yeah. say just right now that reading this book on an airplane, oh, wearing a mask, <laughs> and having everyone else have to wear a mask, you know, almost two years? Do you know 20 months. 20 months. 20 months. Yeah. Into this. For the first time, this is going to sound weird. I, of course, I am scared of COVID. I have very, I want everyone to do the right thing all the time. I don't want to get it. I don't want anyone mm-hmm. I love to get it. But that sort of visceral kind of fear, mm-hmm. like keep you awake at night fear, yeah, is not something I've really experienced with COVID. Because I've always thought like, all right, we're going to do all do our part, yeah. you know, or most of us or whatever. There's going to be a vaccine and we stay, you know, like I stay safe. Everyone else tries to stay safe. The scenario in this book, I guess I feel like. And maybe, yeah, we'll talk about this more. It's just we're not as far away from it as maybe. Right. So maybe we are just five minutes away from the the, the, the novel in that sense. I still am somewhat more optimistic. But yes, I oh, good I you, understand man. your. <laughs> I, no, no, I understand. And. Again, reading it a second time, it is actually there are things that didn't resonate the first time I read it that will re- that resonated mm. after twenty months of this, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, on a, we normally do the story behind the story, but in this case, I think it's kind of pretty obvious, right? <laughs> it would be weird if someone who writes about national security didn't write a book about pandemics. I think. <laughs> Though, spoiler alert to everyone, this is a book about pandemics by someone on the national security beat. So if you're wondering kind of what the plot is like or where it comes from, spoiler, 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 da 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 There is also, by the way, a slightly twist ending, which we will talk about a little bit, which so if you don't want the plot spoiled, don't necessarily listen. Uh, Yeah, I shouldn't say like national security did it, right? It's just like (laughs) he... It, it, the whole book is informed by geopolitics. There's stuff I can't wait to hear what Dan has to say about it because yeah. it's that's the book basically. Yeah. It's like this book has not a ton of sci-fi. It has a lot of international. Relations it has a in lot it. of international relations. Yes. I also want to point out that in the afterward, he thanks friend of the pod Ridley Scott uh, for coming <laughs> up with the idea. So I was curious about what the specific thing that Scott came up with is, but now I think it's that twist ending. 
Yes, you know, Anna, I think at some point we need to have like a chart demonstrating like how ev- like all good sci-fi has some connection, like five, <laughs> six degrees of Ridley Scott or something. I mean, I'm sure we could do that. That would actually be that would be a good poster. So, Dan, we, we've actually talked about this book a little bit more than I thought we would. I, I am very excited to continue our discussion, but we should talk about the plot. All right. Let's start with Act One. Big Trouble in Little Java. There's trouble, I tell you, big trouble in Indonesia, where the World Health Organization is reporting on an outbreak of acute hemorrhagic fever in the Congoli Number 2 refugee internment camp in Java. Meet epidemiologist Henry Parsons, who is the deputy director of infectious diseases at the Center for Disease Control. He doesn't like the mortality distribution of that epidemic, which is it's not killing very young or very old, and so agrees to go to the camp to suss out what's what. Also, meet Tilde Nishinsky, uh, the Deputy Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, someone who, quote, was important, but not as important as she deserved to be, end quote, in Wright's words. She gets briefed about the Indonesia outbreak and wonders if it's bioterrorism. And I'm sort of curious, in terms of the Tilde character, was there like a real life person that you like thought of? One of the things with this book, especially since it's by someone who's generally a nonfiction writer, and mm-hmm. also, spoiler alert, it has Richard Clark in it, like, the Richard Clark. <laughs> Richard Clark, who was a, used to be a, a counterterrorism advisor to multiple U.S. administrations, is a real person and is also appears in this book as a character. So Richard Clark is in the book. And mm-hmm. so because it's by like a Washington reporter, it's hard not to look through for like the real people. The president, for instance, it's kind of <laughs> you wonder who that is. Yeah. Should I ever get a chance to talk to Lawrence Wright? I really want to ask him about Tildy because I do think there she is an accurate portrayal of a type. Yes. For sure. That is definitely the case. Yeah. So, once in Indonesia, Henry pushes his way past the Indonesian bureaucracy to get to the camp, where he finds the Medicine Sans Frontier camp doctors have died. Henry jerry-rigs a connection to the WHO in Geneva, and then uses rudimentary tools to perform the world's most gruesome autopsy ever put into print. I cannot stress how disgusting those passages are. This disease, which winds up getting called the Congoli flu after the camp, clearly shreds the lungs and has a CFR, or case fatality ratio, that exceeds 60%. That is very, 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 very bad, and just, in terms of a fact check, at least 15 times higher than COVID, I believe. Because he's exposed to the blood of the dead, infected person, uh, Henry quarantines for two weeks. While Henry tries to manage the outbreak in Indonesia, the taxi driver who ferried him to the camp and helped get him out, Bam Bang Idris, has left for Mecca for the Hajj. ruh uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way to put this. He heads to Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, Henry's wife, Jill, is stranded with the kids in in Atlanta yet again. Anna, there is a lot of exposition about disease in this book. And when I read it last year, uh, just after it came out, I found that exposition incredibly informative and useful rather than dull. But that said, we've been exposed to a lot of these different anecdotes over the last 20 months. And I was curious whether you had the same reaction now that I did 18 months ago. I found it fascinating Mm -hmm. and i will credit actually his nonfiction writing that might sound i don't know uh, counterintuitive to people but Mm -hmm. uh, you know a good narrative journalist which is what he does often uses characters as a way into data Mm -hmm. and so it's actually not that big a leap to be a novelist and do the same thing and and so we learn about henry as we're learning about the disease Mm -hmm. we learn about bam bang as we learn about the disease Mm -hmm. you know like it's not just like he gives us a bunch of facts about what the disease does it's sort of interwoven with these characters doing what they do and i would add that actually Wright is better a characterization than let's say tom clancy which in some ways this genre reminded me a little bit of but yeah no i think and i think i sometimes read those what i consider like airport thrillers right you know and those are interesting to people who enjoy knowing data about military shit Right. You know, which I sometimes do. Like, and, and, you know, that's cool to know. And Clancy does a good job with and that Clancy's genre. He really does. Yeah, yeah. But this is the work of a very skilled narrative yeah. journalist. So my professor of cre- uh, fiction writing when I was in college, uh, Jim Shepard. You took Shep- fiction writing. I did. Interesting. Jim Shepard okay. taught me fiction writing. He's a, uh, Wow. Yeah. Exa- impressive. Oh, yeah. Oh, and sorry. Jim- that name just landed on my desk there. Sorry. Did you drop it? I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. I've been saving to drop that one. That was like, I, like that, I, I waited many stories to drop that one. But um, Jim Shepard always opened his class by saying, there is no such thing as pure fiction. There is no such thing as pure nonfiction. 
His point being that the arts of fiction writing are very useful in terms of telling nonfiction stories, and the arts of nonfiction are actually very useful in sometimes writing fiction. And I think this book is a perfect example of that. I will also uh, just double down on the warning for the autopsy yeah, <laughs> and the refugee camp in general, which is also from a humanitarian standpoint, pretty wrenching. Appalling, yeah. There's a, I mean, I guess sort of like almost like a trigger warning for folks. There are lots of scenes of both like graphic medical violence, I guess, or like disease violence. Sickness. There's no other way Sickness. to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also scenes of suffering, just mm-hmm. intense suffering. Yes. Wright does not spare his characters that. There are characters yeah. who die in this novel that it, it, you would not have necessarily have expected to die would be the way to put it. Yeah. All right, let's go to Act 2. Siri devised the worst-case scenario for a pandemic and geopolitics to mix. So, Henry flies to KSA. Now, if you want to, kids, if you want to sound like you're in the know in terms of geopolitics, <laughs> don't say Saudi Arabia. You say KSA, which is sort for Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Okay? All so, right. <laughs> Henry flies to KSA to link up with his former protege, Majid. Unfortunately, Bam Bang has already died and infected tons of people. Saudi hospitals are starting to fill up with those sick from Kongali. To prevent further community spread, Henry urges the quarantining of the three million pilgrims in Mecca on the Hajj to essentially slow down the global spread and buy time for scientists to figure out Kongoli. The Saudis reluctantly agree, but to enforce the quarantine, they kill a well-connected Iranian who tries to flee. Just as that escalates tensions, the rest of the world imposes a travel ban on all of KSA. I just wanted to to jump in here because I found that section fascinating and Mm -hmm. also, you know, a lot of narrative tension. Like, there's a lot of different ways this book could have gone. And I was kind of surprised about the amount of narrative tension it had for a book that's about a pandemic. And pandemics just unfold the way they unfold, you know, Mm -hmm. like... It's in the name. The plot is in the name. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It it goes everywhere. The disease goes everywhere. But like whether or not the Saudis would agree to quarantine the pilgrims. Yeah. um, The the characterization of the pilgrims. I will say again, one of the more upsetting scenes. Mm hmm. And what the Saudis have to do to try to at least to enforce the quarantine is disturbing. And here I will also give right credit because I think. I say this not necessarily as a Muslim, but he takes Islam seriously oh, yeah. in this portion of the book. His characters are not caricatures. You know, there are extremely honorable Saudis who are trying to do their best. There are other Saudi characters who are not necessarily trying to do their best. But it's it's the agony of making this decision is well executed. And so you that and that's one of the things that I think sets up the narrative tension in these scenes. Yeah. Because he makes the case for both doing it and not doing it, right? right. Like, although we as the readers of the book are like, it's a pandemic. Don't <laughs> don't let him out. You're going to ruin the book if you let him out. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would have been a short story otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> we know the right thing is to, to is to quarantine them. Right. But also, I would again genuine narrative tension because it does turn into a pandemic. Well, about I whether or not it would happen. I will say this: the other thing that's problematic, or not problematic, but the way this makes it harder is that Henry and everyone else acknowledges this isn't going to stop the pandemic. Yeah. The pandemic yeah. is going to happen. In in most pandemic fiction, the most terrifying moment for me is when you get to the point where the experts realize there is literally nothing they can do to stop this from going global. Right. At that point, it's just a race against time to see whether they can come up with some sort of countermeasure or treatment and or vaccine. And that's effectively done here, where Henry is extremely explicit in saying, all I am asking for is to buy time because it's going to get out no matter what. Yeah. Speaking of buying time for the scientists, Dan. Yes. Continue. The more that the scientists learn about Kongoli, the more puzzling it seems. The CDC researches and finds earlier outbreaks suggesting an origin in Russia. And hey, get this. Uh, there is soon a debate that emerges within U.S. <laughs> policymaking circles over whether this is man-made or naturally occurring, which would never happen in the real world. <laughs> Despite the Muslim travel ban, Kongoli naturally does still spread to the United States. Birds are a disease vector, and America's love of poultry means that soon enough it's spreading via the turkey farms. The disease has also gone global, hitting Iraq and China hard, but curiously Russia not so much. Tilde is pretty suspicious. Also, Henry and Majid are nearly taken out by a Shiite terrorist bomb as tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia spill over. Anna, there is a deputies meeting scene led by Tildy in which someone from the public health service starts urging all of the steps, things like transportation shutdowns, sheltering in place, that by now sound extremely familiar. (laughs) 
The political pushback from everyone around the deputies meeting also sounds incredibly familiar. There's been some speculation over the past week or so about whether or not COVID would have generated a more severe response if it had been as lethal as, let's say, the you know mythical Congolese flu, um, as Wright's invented virus. What say you? Oh, Dan. <laughs> oh, <Anna. laughs> it's so sweet that people think things might have been different <laughs> had the disease been more deadly. I don't think so. Mm. I think this is a very accurate portrayal of a U.S. response. And, you know, the orange man bad part of me mm-hmm. would like to say that the Trump administration would, would have handled it especially badly still. Mm-hmm. But I think you would agree, just looking at history, these are incredibly tough calls to make when it's not obvious. Right that bad things are going to happen. And politicians don't, I mean, I don't know what I would, why I was going to give them any excuse, but politicians do not think very well beyond like the next news cycle. And I can see a democratic administration having just as much trouble doing, making these same kinds of decisions. Right. What, this, so in some ways, I mean, I'd like to believe they would handle it somewhat better. No, but, but this one thing. Oh God. Oh God. Okay. Yeah, I could save this for the other section, right. but a real weak link in the chain here uh-huh. is not having nationalized health care. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually talked about explicitly in the book mm-hmm. that one of the reasons why vaccine production is going to be tough is that they're going to get buy in from insurance companies. Right. So like, so there, there America. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let us know. What were you going to what were you going to say about um no, we're not done, Dan, oh, oops, I wanted sorry. to I, I think sort of at, you can just respond because but my question was I know how that my impulse is to think that Democrats would handle it better cuz they're more my team. Mm-hmm. But but I think <laughs> you know, oof, capitalism, you know, it's uh really would- hard to quit. So I, what I would say is this is... And also not just capitalism. I'll give a break. It's, it's, it's when you shut down society for whatever reason, it's, it's hard. What I would call it is the politics of counterfactuals, which is to say the problem with politics in terms of dealing with catastrophes like this is that politicians rarely get credit for averting a catastrophe. And the reason they rarely get credit for it is that to get credit for it, the public <laughs> has to acknowledge that a catastrophe could have happened. And... They don't because they're usually not paying that close attention. And so this is why, for example, the 2008 financial crisis happens. This is why the pandemic goes global. Politicians do get credit for, like, strong leadership in the face of a crisis, but only when the crisis becomes visible. If you actually pursue wise policies and avoid the crisis in the first place, you can't campaign on that because you can't, even if you try to say, hey, I avoided this mine that I we could have stepped on, no one necessarily believes you. And so... In that sense, I agree with you on that, that in some ways, for for there to be an effective crisis response, unfortunately, there needs to be enough evidence of a crisis that the public sees, yeah, okay, this is necessary. I mean, like, there's better and worse, I guess, bad responses. I mean, Wright makes pretty clear that he's talking about the Trump administration here. Yeah. And they do some familiarly boneheaded things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also, he makes clear that this was going to happen. And I would add, by the way, that not everyone in the deputies committee meetings is acting like an idiot. They are all yeah. they have parochial interests, which are entirely predictable, given the nature of bureaucratic politics in the national security sphere. I absolutely loved Majid. He mm-hmm. is like the best character in the book in terms yeah. of like future boyfriend material. I think. <laughs> he sounds very handsome to you me. Were, may, Anna, maybe in another life, you were the woman that he tried to marry thinking That's that that was his right. Goal. Yes. But he seems very charismatic mm-hmm. and cool. And he and Henry get along really well. And I did actually tear up when they say goodbye to each other. It's an incredibly moving scene. And Dan, I would say a, a depiction of male friendship that you don't see a lot. No. Again, this is where Wright as a novelist, again, points to him because the the sort of shared emotional intimacy that the two characters have as the crisis continues to get worse is both understandable and it's heartfelt. So, you know, mm-hmm. these, these are good qualities. 
All right, let's move on. All right, let's move to Act 3. We do all, in fact, live in a yellow submarine. Congolese spreads to the United States, and things go from bad to worse. The economy tanks, people start hoarding cash and staple goods, and hey, nursing homes start to break down, uh, <laughs> causing Henry's wife, Jill, to try to deal with her sick mother, a decision that does not go well for anyone. The president receives a dose of, wait, wait for it, monoclonal antibodies, but during a national address from the Resolute desk, declaring martial law, starts bleeding from his eyes with Congoli. Sad, but true. Tildy is soon promoted to national security advisor to the new president, who was the vice president. Things are just as bad on the global stage. Russia accuses the United States of engineering Congoli and vice versa. Saudi Arabia and Iran are at war, with Russia and the United States uh, backing their proxies as well, which throws yet another crimp into Henry's travel plans back to Georgia. Henry heads for Bahrain and manages to hitch a ride with the U.S. sub, the USS Georgia. Get it? Headed for Kings Bay, Georgia. But the crew itself is dealing with a Congoli outbreak, which is not a good thing in a submersible submarine. Anna, I think it's safe to say that you enjoyed the sub portions of this book uh, the most. Yeah, I, I did. I mean, this is sort of the Tom Clancy fan in me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a really interesting depiction of what life on a submarine must be like. I want to point out that this is a thing that journalists do as much as novelists. Like the, the difference between Lawrence Wright as a journalist and Lawrence Wright as a novelist just, you know, yeah. Not, not <laughs> great. Not great. Yeah. Not very, very Not great, great so but did, I, it's razor thin would be the better way to say it. Yes. <laughs> razor thin. And so these quick character sketches he gives, mm-hmm. all the characters are really vibrant. Mm-hmm. And also I think it's not a fetishization of the military you know, yeah. it's just kind of like a, these are people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas, again, to reference Tom Clancy, a little, they're more like superheroes um, in a Tom Clancy novel. Well, the other thing I would say on this point is that, so having visited a nuclear sub and having visited an aircraft carrier and, and other surface ships, submariners are a different breed. And it, in fact, I think there are generally speaking sort of three categories of naval officers there are the the aviators the surface ships and then the subs the subs are the smallest and also the most unique and psychologically they're fascinating because of course to function on a sub you have to be able to get along with a lot of people in a very confined space and i i think he did actually nail that without being pedantic about it so that's good All right. On the sub, Henry conceives a desperate plan to develop a vaccine by infecting the captain's pet birds. One bird survives barely, and Henry uses an attenuated version of that bird's infected blood, a process that is known as variolation, to infect himself. And OMG, it works. Meanwhile, outside the sub, things are not great, Bob. Italy and Greece have collapsed. Russia launches a cyber attack on the United States and Europe in response to a real attack on their military forces in the Middle East. Tilde orders the U.S. to respond with cyber attacks on Russian nuclear reactors and a plan to assassinate Putin. Anna, while it's unspoken, it seems very clear that Wright was describing the Trump administration in terms of what the United States executive branch was doing during this pandemic. Did his approach work for you? (laughs) We were talking about this earlier. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it seemed realistic. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder what his take on it, like we were saying earlier, like what his take on how a democratic administration would do. I think that it's just their mistakes would be different. You know, they would yeah. they would also not handle it well because for all the reasons we discussed before. And like I said, the mistakes that this administration the book makes are familiar. Like, I don't know when... <laughs> He it, unusually prescient. <laughs> yeah, say. I mean, he wrote most of this before COVID nineteen. He had to have written yeah. most of this before COVID nineteen was even like on the early warning radar um, yeah. for journalists. I, I will say that Henry's experiment does seem to be run on unobtainium, um, <laughs> but it is historically grounded. Mm-hmm. You know, he gives many many examples of doctors working in very meager conditions and coming up with amazing cures you know i had read because of everyone writing about pandemics you know i knew about the smallpox cowpox right which is one of the classic examples of variolation yes i guess i hadn't realized that the doctor had no idea if it worked (laughs) like i mean of course he didn't but 
just like I'll just infect infect this kid. You know, <laughs> let's see what happens. <laughs> By the way, for listeners who are legitimately interested in sort of the history of infectious disease and the ways in which uh, mankind has tried to respond to it, I would highly recommend Frank Snowden's book Epidemics and Society, which covers almost all the sort of diseases that that Wright discusses in the end of October. And one of the things you learn in that is that on in terms of the smallpox infection, the degree to which uh, the doctor who did it want to say is Jennings, but I won't swear to that. Like, did some pretty risky shit in terms oh, yeah. of like, you know, just infecting <laughs> kids just for the hell of it. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, definitely pre-IRB, pre-Human yeah. Subjects Committees sort of stuff. And so, Dan, we were talking about Tildy earlier, about whether or not uh, either of us knew a Tildy. There is a journalist in the book that you have not <laughs> mentioned because he's weirdly barely a character <laughs> like he's kind of more of a plot device yes he gets he gets barely characterized yeah. and, and when he is characterized he's a philandering doofus sort of i mean although to the extent he used he's used in the plot one the thing that's important about him is that he got too close to the truth <laughs> you know Actually, what I kept thinking was like, I know, Anna, you have a bugaboo, a justified one about how lady journalists are often portrayed in these kinds of things. And actually what struck me was, what if we take the lady journalist stereotype and make him a dude? Yeah, although apparently he's something of a predator, which, you know, that feels a little more accurate. But but it's the got too close to the truth part that makes me (laughs) laugh because... In all of my years, and it's true, like, I didn't work National Security Beat, but I know people who did. Yeah. There are very few, I can't, so this guy is busted down to the entertainment beat because he got too close to the truth. Right. And I just, I would, I've, that's, I, 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 I am lost for words because well, that's well, dumb. Here, here, I say, here's what I would say, which is more often if you were on that beat and busted down, it was probably because you were a predator or got caught not, you know, like not quite crossing the line, but coming close yeah. enough to actually require they some put sort you of in morning joe yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right let's move on to act four the most depressing ending we can imagine the georgia reaches georgia and the navy thanks henry for his service by flying him up to atlanta unfortunately while he was in the sub his wife has died from congoli and the country is not doing much better as basic services have pretty much collapsed uh, even as the pandemic has waned during the summer months uh, henry in other words cannot find his children Back at the CDC, Henry and his team figure out that Congoli is not new, but really, really, really old and might have killed the woolly mammoths. They speculate that its origins came from October Revolution Island in Russia, where, hey, a bioresearch lab was also located. This feeds Tildy's paranoia that the Russians discovered and then spread the virus. Throughout the novel, we also are learning bits and pieces of Henry's backstory. He's the child of Jonestown cultists. He used to work on bioweapons at Fort Detrick with malevolent mentor Jurgen Stark, the kind of guy who would say, you know, Thanos had a few good ideas. Back in the day, Stark weaponized a virus that Henry created and used it on indigenous people in the Amazon. Um, Anna, what did you think of the Jurgen Stark sort of story element? It's one of those things like I imagine I know actually there are people who have the extreme belief that Jurgen Stark does that humanity is a plague, mm-hmm. you know, um, on the planet. I just don't think there's very many of them, <laughs> and I think they kind of get trotted out. I mean, this is a I would say a weak place in the plot. Yeah, because I think they get trotted out in fiction, right? A lot. It's the Thanos and thing, yeah. It's the Thanos thing, yeah. yeah. They get, you need an ultra villain, right. right? Or you need someone to make this claim and feel and like I they think, are righteous in doing so, yeah. Right, and it, it you know it's a form of eugenics, right. actually, t- to feel this way. I mean, Thanos is a eugenicist, yes. Right. He, yeah. Although, well, he's it's more not genocide if it's random. <laughs> exactly, he's random. <laughs> he's like the Joker that way. Yeah, and I think the way that that comes out in. And our real world is more in more casual kind of um, around the corner kind of ways, Mm -hmm. like fetishizing like, oh, look, the animals are coming back after COVID. Yeah. That kind of thing. I don't think the people who say that would ever say, so we should kill everyone. But we just need to be real careful about the way we think about humanity versus nature, because that's not a thing. Right. 
And I would, I would also say that a lot of people who do that, who point out like, oh, look, there's this upside of animals coming back. I don't right. think it, you know, that that's like looking on the bright side of things. That's not, and therefore this is why we should like, you well, know. I, what, I, what I mean yeah. actually is more the way of thinking about it that there is somehow like it's a humans versus nature. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. War here where really we are nature. Yeah. There is no such thing. Oh, uh, Elizabeth Colbert's book, Under a White Sky, yeah. is so good about this and mm. pointing out there is no such thing as nature. Right. I'm using quote marks in the air. That it, as soon as any kind of primates evolved that were using tools or anything, we started having an impact on the environment and the environment had an impact on us. Right. There is no such thing as something, as a, as something untouched by man. Mm-hmm. Or humans. Yes. No, that's so, an excellent point. And also, that's would, just... Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I would just add that uh, it's interesting you mentioned Elizabeth Colbert because I think um, Wright references the sixth extinction at one point in the book as Yes, well. I so, believe he does. Yes. Fellow New Yorker writer. There we go. Yeah. So, Tildy calls Stark and Henry together and asks them to recreate and distribute that super lethal virus. Henry, however, has already prepared an antiserum and emails the formula to the relevant authorities, somewhat inconveniencing Stark's plan to call the human populace. <laughs> Putting up a roadblock, yes. really. A speed bump, as it were. Yeah. The book closes relatively suddenly with the vicious return of Congolese uh, next wave, as well as lots of other weaponized diseases being released by governments across the globe, causing chaos. Uh, Henry does reunite with his children and is back on the USS Georgia, and they sail to investigate October Revolution Island. Henry and a SEAL team accompanying him finds that the laboratory on the island is abandoned and was likely abandoned during the Soviet era, therefore has not been used in years. But they also, and this is the final twist, find the carcass of a woolly mammoth in the melting permafrost. Wright closes the book with Henry doing the scientist version of Charlton Heston and Planet of the Apes, saying, we did this to ourselves. So, Anna, it turns out that the real killer was climate change all along. This really is a book just like The Tomorrow War, right? <laughs> um, well, people should go back and listen to our Tomorrow War episode. Right. And I think we would both agree that that particular plot twist was one of the better things about Tomorrow War. I, I think I literally said it was the only subtle point of that movie. Yeah. So, yes. And, yes. and I also think this may have been Ridley Scott's contribution. That is my oh, suspicion. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. That is my yes. suspicion. And I also think, I believe I've read about this before, mm-hmm. that this is a thing people worry about. Yes, it is a legitimate thing. I mean, one of the, one yeah. of the legitimate concerns... I'm quite sure about this, is the idea... That is to say, the permafrost melting and releasing diseases. Yes, that the permafrost will melt and release diseases that are so ancient that we have no immunity to them, is the key yeah. thing. And by the way, I would add that it all would also... This would also be consistent, I assume, with the idea that in the book, the Russians are at least somewhat more impervious to this, since if the disease started there, you know, from 10,000 right. years ago, it would make sense they had slightly more immunity against it. And, and I will say, Lawrence Wright has really bested your move to New Zealand plan <laughs> as far as what to do in case of an apocalypse, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like, escape in a submarine. I, I got it. I mean, from now on, when people ask me. That's the I, answer? I'm, I believe that that's the answer. Escape in a submarine to New Zealand, perhaps. I was going to say, but you've, you've <laughs> or Australia. I mean, this is the plot to on the beach, so by Neville Shute. So, you know, that that's something else we could eventually talk about. Well, Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this book? Anna, the IR is all over this book. (laughs) It's like a raging infection. Um, Unsurprisingly, Wright is extremely savvy in the ways of geopolitics. And there's a lot of stuff in this book that that, that basically rings true. His description of Saudi politics, as well as his rather dour description of Mohammed bin Salman, again, a character who's there but really sort of goes unnamed, spot on. The idea that Russian tactics under Putin would be somewhat subversive, and indeed he uses Richard Clark as sort of a, a mouthpiece to describe a lot of this, again, pretty much on point. And how the U.S. would respond under an incompetent <laughs> presidency. Yeah, you know what? In retrospect, he, he nailed almost all of that. But it's more than just the sort of descriptions of geopolitics that Wright, I think, gets at. I think there's two sort of more theoretical points or conceptual points in terms of, of people who study U.S. foreign policy that... that are also sort of present in this book and that are worth thinking about. The first and most important thing is that 
Wright really captures the idea that policy principles in meetings like the deputies committee that we see, you know, periodically recur through this book are going to focus on the urgent over the important, which is to say that, you know, whenever this Congolese comes up, it's clear that almost everyone around the table doesn't want to talk about it. And they also don't want to talk about solutions that require months of of effort. Um, Or bad news. They also have a real aversion to bad news. They don't want to deal with bad news. There is a key moment where the head of the public health service sort of briefing Tildy says, you don't want to get into a war with Russia right now. You want to devote all U.S. resources to combating this plague. And it's clear Tildy just, it's like hearing Esperanto or something. She has no response to this. It, it doesn't equate to her. And that's because she prioritizes the urgent, namely responding to Russia with the important, which is preventing people from dying. And in some ways, I think the, the climate change twist is, is a nice way of sort of capturing that because clearly to Wright, that is in fact the important thing, if not necessarily the urgent thing. The other thing that Wright gets, and this might be the more disturbing part of the book, is essentially the dubious utility of deterrence models when you're talking about things other than nuclear weapons. So, you know, generally speaking, when it comes to nuclear weapons, there is uh, the logic of MAD, which is mutually assured destruction. The idea is that you would never launch a nuclear weapon um, against Russia or China or what have you with the understanding because those countries would in turn respond with a strike that would lead to the devastation of everyone. There is therefore no point in going down that road. It has often been sort of casually assumed that the logic of deterrence extends from the nuclear to other forms of combat. And I would say that is true actually weirdly with conventional warfare as well, particularly sort of large-scale warfare that would cause massive casualties. But what what Wright demonstrates in this book is that when you're talking about either cyber or bioweapons or basically things where you could even introduce a slight patina of plausible deniability, that calculus starts to break down. And so in some ways, that's the, the most disturbing thing, the idea that you could see cyber warfare leading to actual warfare or biological agents, you know, being released because there is a belief that the other side must be responsible for this, even though they might deny it. They might actually be correct in denying it, but they can't prove it. And therefore, this leads to this sort of spiral model of of escalating conflict. Dan, I wonder if in some ways there might be a generational problem here that that could Mm -hmm work itself out, which is to say, you and I, and and maybe most people of thinking age right now, consider conventional war to be the worst thing that could happen, and nuclear war, the worst thing that could happen. Like, anything short of that, well, you might, you know, who knows, like you're saying, plausible deniability, maybe not that bad, we can protect ourselves, whatever. Like, I have kind of a hope that at some point, people will realize that these other forms of war are as deadly, as un, you know, uh, controllable, mm-hmm. as shooting at people. If anything, there can be worse. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. okay. So, so here is where I'm going to separate cyber out from bio, from from bio warfare. It should be pointed okay. out. Biological warfare has not actually been used in recent years, at least by states, you know. And so, like, this is where, you know, I mean, and we've seen this through COVID is that there might be accusations of this. But I think even even the most hawkish U.S. national security observers, the one who think that China weaponized this in the Wuhan Institute for Virology, acknowledge that they didn't intentionally leak this. In other words, that if this did, if this was a lab leak, it was an accident, rather than something that was done intentionally. And my point here is that the norm against the use of biological weapons still exists and hopefully will continue to exist. Cyber scares the fuck out of me. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, maybe this upcoming generation who's so, so online, so very online, like, because I think that we're at this point where, yeah, it scares the fuck out of me too, Mm -hmm. in part because of what Wright lays out here, that you can kill people with cyber warfare just as easily as you can kill them in any other way. There are two reasons that cyber scares me. I mean, there are three reasons. The first and the most obvious thing is the direct effects of a cyber attack, right. which is it can actually kill people. The second reason is that cyber is one of the sort of ways in which you could potentially launch an attack that is short of conventional methods, but nonetheless increases the likelihood that then it spills over into an actual war which is, again, something we really want to avoid. But the real reason that I'm terrified, um, (laughs) and this is something that my colleague Eric Gartsky has written about, is the idea that there might be people who think that through cyber capabilities you could suppress and or sabotage the other side's nuclear capability. And if you think that, if you actually believe that, 
suddenly the arguments for a nuclear first strike become reasonable or viable. And that is because the they thing. won't be able to respond. Exactly. And so that is the thing that legitimately terrifies me. And again, remember, all of this is operating in the realm of belief. It's not whether or not the cyber capabilities can actually do that. It's whether the people with their finger on the nuclear button think that it's possible. And you just made me think of something, okay. which is that our cultural norms around nuclear war are so embedded mm-hmm. That is the thing of last resort, yeah. mutually assured destruction. We even have the nuclear football. We have the two people having to turn their keys in order to do it. Mm-hmm. We have the the legends of someone refusing to do it. Not just legends, reality. There are genuine reality. Who, right, right, right. That yeah. we have an actual ca- case yeah. where someone refused to do it because it didn't seem like it was really happening. This is in the Soviet Union, I would add. But yes, right. keep going. We don't have those same precautions around cyber. You don't have to have two people turn the key. No. The president isn't the one to make the decision. Correct. And also, furthermore, in some ways, I mean, this this gets to a, a whole host like of we, other Do you understand? What I mean? yeah. That's what I'm sort of saying. Like, I want to believe that we'll somehow catch up with this. Mm-hmm. That we we have as a culture decided, oh, yeah, nuclear, you got to be real careful about that one. Mm-hmm. That one we want to really be sure. Right. And this other stuff, it's more like, well, you know, we'll let the CIA, I don't know, like... <laughs> But it's not just that. Part of the issue of cyber, one of the appeals of cyber as, a, as an offensive tool of diplomacy is the idea that you can have plausible deniability. In other words, you can give it to, let's say, a hacking group located in St. Petersburg yeah. or, you know, in Silicon Valley or what ha- or in Jerusalem or what have you. And it's that very plausible deniability that both increases the likelihood of the use, but also potentially enables you to sort of back away and say, no, 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 we weren't responsible for this. But the problem is, is that all it takes is suspicion, and you get escalation. And so, yeah, it's a concern. And it's something so, that Wright portrays very effectively, I think. We've discussed, Dan, already your affinity uh, to the military folks mm-hmm. going to the war college and whatnot. Even though you're wearing a tie-dye shirt right now, I will point out. <laughs> Fucking hippie. <laughs> what do you think of the scenario in the book where, where the deputy meeting decides, yeah, we're going to go for it. We're going to release biological agents. <sighs> Because I felt like, would this, because it's a little bit in the book, it is partially that Mike Pence is president. Yes. <laughs> that makes this possible. So maybe that should just be stipulated. I have but, to say, this is where I, again, maybe this is optimistic of me, but I even think that the Trump administration folks would have had some pause at that moment. Because, again, they had no hard evidence that Russia had actually done what they were doing. The more disconcerting element was that they they decide to do this in response to a cyber attack by Russia on the U.S. And so that's where the escalation goes. What I would have assumed is they would have come up with more military and cyber means of responding rather than going to the biological route. And I'll just point out again the, the danger of, of this as far as like we haven't really taken it on as, as the deadly and uncontrollable thing that it is or is that they, they actually even outsource it, right? It's not, yeah. like you said, it's plausible liability. They're not even going to have the military release this thing. They give it to Jürgen. Jürgen Stark, yes, the, the right? malevolent mentor. So like when we hear these reports from, you know, Bob Woodward's book about like Millie refused, like oh, he was going to yeah. refuse to take an order to launch nuclear weapons. There's no refusing to take an order to release a virus. Yeah, also I want to just correct the record. That's not what the Woodward book says. Or Okay. I'm sorry, no, this is important. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff All is right, not I'm in just, the nuclear I, chain of command. But, but this is, I, okay, I this is also that. how, this is also how. I, I, um, this is worth being pedantic about, is all I'm saying. No, this is very worth being pedantic about, yeah. and I am wrong as a journalist to kind of just do this sort of sensationalist version of yeah. it. So I have been properly chastened. Sorry. You are correct. <laughs> Sorry about that. It Anna. is a better story. There we go. Print the legend. But that is why there is a difference between fiction and nonfiction. So. Yes. And that is why sometimes. I'm going to say this out loud. Maybe Bob Woodward books could use an additional context. All right. Okay, so Anna. Dan. I have a question. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism after reading this book? Uh, Dan. In Soviet Russia, capitalism points out the evils of books. (laughs) (laughs) That goes out to our fellow Gen Xers. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a interlude in the book w- that talks about Tildy's time in Russia mm-hmm. in the 1980s. Very interesting. I assume reported. Her, again, what I assume is sort of factually based insights on Putin. 
I found I, I didn't know about this period of his. It's career. correct, yeah, and that, and that part was accurate. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In terms of like the the you know larger book, uh, it is for one. You know, the Cold War was never about capitalism versus communism, and I'm really glad that that's just not a part of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then do global capitalism and our reliance on fossil fuel are the things that set the stage for this tragedy. It's infused into the book. Okay, yes. Right? It seeps into the book. Right. And then I also, there's a passage where uh, Henry is recollecting his time designing um, bioweapons. Mm-hmm. And... It's interesting that it's a description of science, but I'll just read it now and make a point. Henry could scarcely reflect on those years without obsessing over the weakness in his character that led him to enter what he now regarded a cult. It was a scientific cult, to be sure, not a pseudo-religion. And yet the hallmark of any powerful cult is that it presents itself as the extreme opposite of a prison of thought. Freedom was what he was selling. The freedom to imagine, to experiment, and to create anything, no matter how dire or dangerous— Instead of threatening humanity, they were saving it. I think that is not a bad description of capitalism, Dan. No, it's actually a pretty, like, actually positive description of capitalism in some ways. Well, except for the whole... Except for the whole unleashing climate change. And yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But it captures the dynamism of capitalism. That is my point. Yes, Yes, right. No, but that... And that's what people who adore capitalism think that that's how they sell it. Yes. Is that you will have freedom. Mm -hmm. You get the freedom to do anything. The only thing you gotta do is make a profit. You can do anything. Mm -hmm. And that... You, that is sold as freedom rather than as creating other kinds of prisons that we all have to live in. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, mm-hmm. I would like to give uh, one cheer for the civilizing influence of fiat currency. Woo! <laughs> During the scenes where no one has any money <laughs> and people are bartering and whatnot, for some reason, I thought of a quote that turned out to be from Alan Greenspan. It's not really a great direct quote, but he was talking about the civilizing effects of fiat currency. Like, because it's all trust, right? Like, you have to believe in institutions. Anna, can I read this quote? Okay. Okay. The history of money is the history of civilization, or, more exactly, of some important civilizing values. Its form at any particular period of history reflects the degree of confidence or degree of trust that market participants have in the institutions that govern every market system. Yep. It's a, I mean, it's well put. Yeah. That was true. <laughs> it's a fair point. I, and I believe this will be the first time and last time that I quote Alan Greenspan in our podcast. In a favorable manner, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, wait. Yeah. Wait. Do you hear that? <laughs> Dan, we have entered. Oh, oh my God. The debris field. The debris field. It's come. It's here. This is where we talk about the stuff we didn't get a chance to talk about. Dan, do you have anything that's in the debris field? I have a few things. First, again, and I, it bears repeating props to write. Um, rereading this book, the stuff that I had actually sort of skipped. Like I was impressed in the spring of 2020 how much he got right. But there was also stuff that I don't think quite registered that registered really hard this time I read it. Namely, the question of whether this was a intentional bioweapon virus or not. I did not think that debate was going to recur. Or also the obsession with monoclonal antibodies, which I had completely forgotten about in reading the book. Second, if, if I have a critique of the book, it's that China doesn't really appear... And that mm. seems a little weird in the geopolitics of this. It, it is almost written as if it's Cold War Two, and mm-hmm. like the fact that China merits. I almost put an electric boogaloo joke in my yeah little response. Yeah, so I would have liked to have seen this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to again be resolutely, resolutely optimistic on this and say, even <laughs> given the current situation. I felt like the book was actually a little too pessimistic on the breakdown of social order in the United States. And indeed, one of the, I think, one of the the cheering things about the way the pandemic has played out is that there was actually a fair amount of social solidarity, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic, in terms of, of trust in emergency services, trust in first responders, and so on and so forth. And while I don't necessarily know if that sustained itself, I also don't think the situation is necessarily as dire as, as Wright portrays. And, yep. I... I sort of agree yeah. uh, although I think I'm in general more pessimistic than you are I am not as pessimistic as Wright is yes fair enough and I think a weakness of the book is the only good deeds in the book are done by military people yeah <laughs> basically yeah there's no examples of like just ordinary people helping each other out which I do which and we does happen right and we talk about this <laughs> in terms of the Rebecca Solnit book and others like there are examples of this now over time that 
also does tend to break down. In some ways, I'll be curious about the book that really captures that perfectly. I think he was a little too quick here. One other thing, which was in my mind, Henry was always Anthony Fauci when I was reading this. Like, I don't know why, like, that was the, the guy I kept thinking of. I don't know if you had a well, particular... Well, he's described as being short and having a big head. Yes. In this book, uh, Henry walks with a cane. He has suffered from childhood ailments that has affected his ability to walk. And yes, Anthony Fauci cannot throw a baseball, but otherwise <laughs> physically fit as far as we know. Oh, and sorry, one last thing, which is I, I confess that thrill... I like the, the twist of climate change playing a role in the ending, but otherwise the ending was pretty damn quick. Like, it, it goes to, like, fifth gear and like you kind of miss a lot of stuff like when we were texting about whether or not we were going to record i assumed i had a lot more book to go <laughs> because they, i was actually in the last chapter but i was like well it can't this oh, has to be there, yes. there's got to be more yes but no it just <laughs> ends like there there you go nope yeah. it ends i want to give some sympathy to the writer that has to end a novel that is really <laughs> long or that you've really thought about for a long time because endings are tough yeah. like sticking the landing Resolving the plot is one thing, but then what happens, putting the characters in a place where you can be like, okay, I'm fine leaving them there for now. Mm -hmm. That's really hard. I do think it's funny in retrospect almost that like a good mystery writer, Wright seeds climate change throughout the book without ever really commenting on it. Yes. And that was, again, exceptionally well done and very subtle. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, when Bam Bang yeah. goes on the Hajj, there's some really beautiful writing there. Yes. I don't know if you, you noticed, but again, his um, writing about Islam mm -hmm. is quite beautiful. And I don't want to use the word sympathetic because that makes it sound like you can be sympathetic. Like it, you would not normally be it's sympathetic well informed religion. It's well-informed is what it is. It's well-informed and um, genuine, Yes, I would say. Yeah. And there's a particularly beautiful passage <laughs> where Bam Bang talks about the Hajj, what you wear on the Hajj, yeah. as being the symbol of a burial shroud. Right. And how death is our great equalizer. Hmm. And that is, you know, we all know reading the book what's going to happen. And it just made me, you know, it... It was a nice elegy just, for that character. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I will point out that Richard Clark used to be my neighbor. Cool. This is cool. <laughs> And not only does he get to be a character in the book, but he appears to survive and thrive. <laughs> like he at the one of the darkest points in the book is still eating at the Cosmo Club. So yes, I like I did like that. Like no matter what's going on anywhere else, the Cosmo Club will still continue to function. And now we turn our attention to Ted Lasso. Uh, Here yes. there be spoilers for episode seven. I will do a brief rundown of the plot. Dan, are you ready? I am ready. Hit me. Okay. Nate is living and dying by Twitter, which is never, ever good. We are reminded that his struggles with ego are an artifact of bad dadding. Keely feels smothered by Roy, complains about it. Roy finds out and gets mad. And then, again, is not just chastened, but absolutely deferential to the point I'm starting to wonder if he's too perfect. <laughs> there is no commentary on dads. Ted hates therapy for surprisingly cynical reasons, but Sharon wins him over. And then plot C, of course, is Sam and Rebecca still unresolved. They still don't know that they are each other's banter match. So having said that, Dan, what did you like about this episode? I, I, I want to make a general comment, which I still feel a little like this is not up to season one. So interestingly enough, I actually think this might be my favorite episode of this year, of mm. this season. There, so there are many things that I liked about it. First, Nate's dad yelling at the newspapers. I just sort of like that particular trope. Um, on the whole, I like Nate's narrative arc this season, which is not to say that I think Nate is doing the right thing. He's not. But, like, the self-loathing that, you know, is clearly consumed Nate is interesting in a way that I was not expecting to see. Also... The, the show's rare but successful link between football strategy and relationship strategy, <laughs> I actually thought was extremely deftly executed. And yet again, a rare instance in which Jamie Tart is actually correct. But when Jamie says, no, I don't want to crowd the pitch, it's actually better if I keep my man away. And again, yeah. Brett Goldstein just like, he has so many different readings of the line fuck that it's it's legitimately impressive when he comes up with a new one. Yes. Um, you were talking about Roy potentially being too good. There's the notion of the manic pixie dream girl. And yes, I'm oh my God, yes. I think Roy Kent is the profane pixie dream boy is the way I would put it. That's very, might be very the- Very, very good. You have hit the ball on the pitch. I don't know. Like it's, <laughs> you've scored a goal. I'm trying to think of the right 
metaphor. That is so good. Yes. yes. Completely yes. agree. That is the way I would put it. I don't necessarily have a problem with it, I would add. Again, I like I, I was actually a little worried. It's like, oh no, I don't want trouble with that relationship. And like I was glad it wound up being like a minor plot, but that might be, you know, me being a fanboy. I particularly liked and this was the most serious thing, was the Sharon's the doctor's response to Ted lashing out and saying, I can't trust you, you know, you're paid to do this. And I actually, like, really appreciated the response, which was to say, would you do this for free? And Ted says yes, which, of course, is befitting Ted Lasso. And then she says yes, but you still take the money. And and pointing out, and again, I know we talk a lot on this podcast about the various evils of capitalism. This is actually somewhat contrary to that, and I'm just going to subvert this point, which is it is okay to take money to do things that you actually care about. And I actually thought that was a very valid point to make in Ted Lasso. Well, in fact, part of the problem with capitalism is people are often not compensated enough for the work that they do. Fair enough. Yes, yes. And also, I I am not anti-money. I I mean, like, I I guess on some level, but like, I recognize the impossibility of the dream world that I would like to inhabit. Um, But part of what my problem is, is just that people should be paid for the work that they do, you know, that's equal to the amount of effort involved or the amount of actually not the effort sorry equal to the amount of value that they produce sorry fair enough let me just quickly say uh that is also on my list and Mm -hmm. i'll just add to your loving of it Mm -hmm. i think we rarely get women in popular media expressing criticism in a way that's not emotional that's calm that's not negative even. It's not even like, an. Um, it, it's not even challenge. It, how do I say it? It's, it's the way you should express criticism, which is in a kind of emotionally neutral way. Yes. So first of all, good God, yes. I had not thought about that until you said it, but yes. Anna, I'm not sure you're aware that there are issues involved with women displaying anger and or emotion. <laughs> you know, this, no, I'm going to, Dan, I'm goes, here. Goes, it's deeper than that. There are issues <laughs> yeah. with women expressing criticism. Or authority, for that matter. Or authority. And that's what she does here, is she yes. just has a very calm, like, you said this, it offended me, I'm not angry at you, right. I'm not, I don't think less of you, And this is this thing that you did, and this is how I feel about it. Yes, and let me put it this way, my, I watched this episode with my wife, the therapist, who approved of this episode, in that, you know, again, we all have issues in which, you know, when our profession is portrayed even just a little bit off in terms of fiction, but I think that this received my wife's, you know, good therapy seal of approval in terms of, it was entirely expected that Ted would lash out, it was interesting that she was totally prepared for that and also had as you say an incredibly deft response with the absolute correct tone yeah and also points to the ted for taking it as it was presented yes you know i i feel like sometimes i i like ted lasso for the way it presents this world that that all of us would like to inhabit mm-hmm. where sometimes people just deal with each other in a, a humane way <laughs> like <laughs> wow yeah. All right. Uh, I know you have one more thing you like. Oh, yes, which is uh, Ratatouille is a goddamn masterpiece. I stand by that. I, I agree with that sentiment expressed in the show. And I just think that occasionally needs to be said, you know, just as in general. Uh, uh, what so, about you? Uh, yes. So I also, we discussed uh, Sharon's directness with Ted. Mm-hmm. I like her line, or uh, he responds, I like that. And she says, I knew you would. <laughs> And then also Twitter is evil, Dan. Twitter is very, very evil. And living and dying by Twitter is a fool's game that will not just destroy you, but your relationships. Not just Twitter. Uh, I just want, I'm not defending Twitter. Social Social media. media. Let's let's extend this to social media more generally. Yes. Yeah. I think Twitter is particularly um, insidious because of the um, directness of it and the fact that anyone can comment. And I don't know, like I'm, doing more instagram lately and it's just a more humane place like it might be that the norms just... no i mean it's true that the norms of different social media are rather different and twitter it yeah. can be a particularly nasty place i'm not going to deny that That's but I, I also will say that i agree that nate's arc here is very realistic mm-hmm. and interesting mm-hmm. i like that he's not being purely bad or good right you know he's not doing a turn it's this is what happens sometimes when insecure people get the praise that they deserve. Right. 
Like and th- he deserves all the praise that he's getting. No, and that's in some ways the most fascinating element of this. It's the idea of, I mean, in some ways, you know, by objective standards, Nate is living the dream. He's gone from being literally the water boy to being an assistant coach, to being praised in the media, you know, to actually being able to do what he wants to do and is actually apparently reasonably good at. And yet it is messing with him in ways that are the best plots in fiction are plots that are simultaneously surprising and then in retrospect make a great deal of sense and i think that's what this plot does in that you wouldn't have expected nate to react this way like before season two but like this is entirely reasonable i also very much enjoyed sometimes three dots appear (laughs) (laughs) as someone kind of dealing with some of the same shit mm-hmm. like there is this like weird dance you do and the three dots i hate those three dots so fucking much <clears throat> i don't know who thought of them i would read a deep dive on the decision to, to the three do dots. the three dots yeah i would yeah. totally read that because i'm not sure it was a good decision <laughs> What did we learn, Dan? So I think many of the things I learned are the things you liked, which is the first thing I learned is that it turns out boys are just like girls when it comes to social media and texting. I think one of my favorite scenes in this episode is how you see Keely and Rebecca talking about what they're going to do. And without causing offense, that is a thoroughly gendered conversation that would be you would it was not terribly surprising but then it cuts to the clubhouse where sam and all of the players are having the exact same conversation which i found utterly adorable and 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 useful i learned that apparently doing whatever my significant other asks me is really fucking hot you know so that's good to know and i will try pro tip dan that's a thank you i appreciate that anna and you know I, i wrote that down um and you know Going back to social media, all I learned is that it takes one negative comment to cause people to spiral. And that was actually, again, a a moment I particularly liked in this episode where Nate finally finds the one negative comment and then just goes off as a result. And weirdly, that made me feel better because there are times where I felt that way and I've nonetheless learned to resist that urge and realize it's okay. I don't have to respond to the negative comment. I don't have to lash out as a response to the negative comment. And this is, I think, one of the things you learn, hopefully, in order if you're going to survive social media, I guess would be the way to put it. Right. Anna, what about you? Uh, bad dads are bad. That may be a theme this season. Yes. Uh, I also learned that short chapters are what makes a book unputdownable, and I'm going to remember that <laughs> for future novels. This is true. I have to say, that is absolutely true um, as a reader. Like, you know, as someone who normally prefers nonfiction, but if I read fiction, short chapters make me feel like I've accomplished things. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's, it's, I, other people might have a different reaction to this, but I'm like, oh, yeah, just burn through a chapter. Awesome. It doesn't matter if it's short. It makes me feel better. Interesting. I guess I really should take note of that. Yes. So we have come to the end of our podcast, Dan. I think I'll wrap us up here by reminding people to subscribe and review. If you've already subscribed, reviewing is a big help to us. Someday Mm -hmm. I'm going to like promote those good reviews because I think we basically have mostly good reviews. Oh, good. I think. Pretty sure. And and if we do have a negative comment, we don't have to (gasps) we don't have to dwell on it. You know what? You are so right, Dan. <laughs> that is a thing that another thing I need to write down from this episode. Yeah. You can become a patron by going to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space the nation. We have some cool things coming up. We are talking about the Matrix next, mm-hmm. which I'm excited to talk about. And mm-hmm. then more noir, Dark City. And I realized the Matrix does qualify as noir. It does. Interesting. So. Okay. Yeah, this is a good conversation to have. All right. But until then, Dan... Keep this channel open for more.